On the line with me is Stephen Kessler, Ph.D., uh, he, 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 you actually have a fan club, Steve. When I tell people oh, that you're going to be on the show, and in fact, the girls were over last night, and they're like, I love that guy. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, uh, but you are, um, you take some really serious subjects and and really break them down. And, and one that you recently had in The American Thinker is the roots of the, the left's acceptance of pedophilia. This just, I mean, it stops me in my tracks. We need to protect our children. What is going on? All right, so here's what you got to understand about liberalism. Robert Nisbet, in the best book on conservative and, uh, conservatism and liberalism I've ever encountered, called The Sociological Tradition, defines liberalism as a devotion to the individual and his or her ever-increasing liberties and freedoms. There is no real bound for what the liberals will try to push next. So if you wanted to look at, say, gay marriage, Senator Barack Obama, of course, marriage was between man and woman. You know, saw First Lady Hillary Rodham and President Bill Clinton, of course, marriage was between man and woman. And then, you know, 15, 20 years later, of course, marriage is between man and man and woman and woman. And so that's just a, a small example of how Liberalism has no real defined boundaries, and they're always pushing for their ever-increasing liberties and freedom. But to take it a step back, further back in time, we have to go to Rousseau. So I'm always talking about Rousseau on your show. Mm -hmm. Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is the godfather and patron saint of liberalism. This guy believed that we were living first and foremost in this state of nature. The state of nature is a fictitious utopia. No one can prove it. No one can find it. Nobody can say, oh, yeah, 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 state of nature. Uh, Detroit, 1972, great year for the state of nature. You know, nobody can find it. And um, among other things, we were living in the state of nature as equals, free from the opinion and judgments of others. All right? Okay. Next, next Rousseau says, somebody took private property, said mine, and then society began. And among other things that happened... Um, human beings then suddenly became subject to the need as well as the opinions of others. And now all of a sudden, people are, are dealing with other people and depending on their opinions and needs in ways that they never were before. You see, Rousseau believed that this suddenly then caused people to behave as phonies. This is what he said. One does not dare appear as what one is, and in this perpetual constraint, men who make up this herd we, herd we call society placed in the same circumstances, will all do the same things unless more powerful motives prevent them. Thus, one will never know well the person one is dealing with. See, Rousseau understood that the moment society began, we had to curry favors from others. And in doing so, we would have to be insincere, artificial, and phony. Rousseau wanted to get rid of that so we could be ourselves. And what he's really saying is, look inside and be whoever you are on the inside, free from the opinions and judgments of others, including the ethic of shame. And that's really what this ethic of authenticity was about. For those of you who lived through the 70s, unlike me, you probably heard about that. Do you remember that, Kim? I do. Yeah, and so that's what this whole notion of looking inside yourself and being whoever you are, free from guilt, free from shame and free from the judgment of others is all about. You know, hey, just a quick comment, Stephen. I remember, I'm dating myself back in the 60s, one of the things was, I'm, I'm going to go find myself. 
And I remember I said that to my dad, and he's like, find yourself, you know, and it, but the, I just remember that was what everybody was doing. I need to go out and find myself. And that's probably from Rousseau, yes? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, basically, what he expects is to be able to have a life where you can live free from shame and judgment of others, and you can be, you know, insulated from them. So I wrote a piece for the, Amer- uh, for the Imaginative Conservative that's live, if you want to check it out, called Victimology 101. And in it, I relate this whole notion of not just looking inside and being free, but I connect it to safe spaces. It's not just that these people can expect, or not just that they desire to look inside with them, um, inside themselves and be whomever they choose. It's this freedom to be insulated from judgment and shame from others. They, they need a safe space for this to be, you know, for this to exist. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, so how does this then work to pedophilia? Because, you know, I, I mean, I think children are, are precious and treasured. I think they're a gift from God. I think they're a blessing. And, and so, so to take away a child's innocence, I think, is one of the most cruel things that you can do. And pedophilia does that. So tell me so how this all happens. Yeah, so um, if, you, you know, if you pay attention to the culture wars, you'll see a lot of the people pushing the transgenders, pushing LGBT agendas, are for some reason choosing to lump in um, certain acts of pedophilia. And you'll see it on magazines like Slate or um, Salon, where they'll have pedophiles on that are advocating for the lifestyle. And it makes you wonder who these people are and why they're doing it. Um, I linked into the article a whole bunch of media outlets that are doing it. And that's where it's coming from. I can't explain exactly why these people in good conscience think this is something we can get away with. That's something you'll have to actually ask them in person. But that's, you know, that's the sociological and historical origins of why these people are pushing it. Okay, now, Steve, we've, we've got two things that are happening here. Well, we've got more than two things, but, but two <laughs> things. Uh, you know, we have the sex education bill that is now law. Uh, it's uh, uh, House Bill 1032. And uh, in it, I should have the actual, let me get the actual, uh, I should have had it right here. I forgot to do that. Um, the, the, uh, basically what it's saying, though, is in law that uh, in sex education, in our public schools and, and charter schools, that not only do they, they teach all the different life, lifestyles, but they have to teach the experiences. And this is starting in fourth grade. I mean, first of all, when I looked at that, and that's law, when I, I've shown people the actual, you know, the, the, the legislation on it, it stopped me in my tracks. And so it seems like it's a hypersexualization of our kids. You know, we're not letting our kids be kids. But is this kind of, you know, a, a, a precursor to, you know, making them victims of pedophilia because they're, we're now putting things in their brains that maybe they're not even ready to, to learn yet? Sure. So, um, you know, you've had David Horowitz on your show before, who runs the David Horowitz Freedom Center. Right. I, you connected us, and I spoke to him on the phone once, and he, he said it just perfectly. They're all communists. I mean, that's what this all boils down to. It's all communism. It's all, um, you know, some of the roots of, uh, I would recommend two good books. One is called Takedown by Paul Kangor, and the other is called The Devil's Pleasure Palace by Michael Walsh. They both talk about all of these far-lefty, you know, Frankfurt School Marxists 
And this is just all what they want to do. They want all complete and total destruction of Western civilization. They want to rebuild it in our own image. And so much of it is based on sexual liberation. And that's, that's, that's really all this is. People looking inside, being as free as possible, being whoever they want, free of shame, and they're starting early. But what about the child? You know, and that's another <laughs> thing. Now, you know, again, these people are, are pushing forward uh, all-day kindergarten. And, you know, to many people out there that's paying for child care, um, because they're trying to make ends meet, gosh, to think that you, you know, won't have to pay for child care. The kids are going to all-day kindergarten. You, you know, it sounds somewhat attractive. But when, again, I look at the players on this, these people don't give a flying rip about our children. And so I just see danger, danger. Now, I, I did pull this up here. I, um, okay. Um, okay, sorry, sorry about that. You know what? So I have the bill now. Okay, go ahead. To interject real quickly, always remember liberalism is the devotion to the individual and his or her ever-increasing liberties and freedoms. And because of that, we just keep pushing the boundaries of what is and is not, you know, an acceptable behavior. And we have so much freedom already in this country. We have so many things that, that are good. And because, you know, they just keep pushing it, they don't stop and look at, oh, maybe we've gone too far. Maybe we don't need this. And there is no real moral, you know, correct or incorrect. It's just what you choose to do and be on the inside. But, but uh, Stephen, what about the people that are affected by, you know, this, this freedom where people do whatever they want? Uh, I mean, what about how that affects other people? Uh, aren't they concerned about that? You know, one of the three questions I've learned to always ask liberals is, you felt good, but did you do good? Talk to me about the results. And that's actually one of the things that you'll notice when people are advocating for things in liberalism that they fail to do. They fail to check and see, hey, how did this actually work out? How did, you know, getting, 15, getting minimum wages raised at fast food restaurants work out? How did rent control work out? How did open borders work out? It's not about the results, it's about the ideas and the moral superiority that the ideas they advocate for give them. Oh, the virtue signaling. Huh. Interesting. Yep, virtue signaling, yeah. Okay. Hey, Stephen, let's go to break. When we come back, did you okay. say that there were two other questions that you ask uh, liberals? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so let's go to break. When we come back, let's let's uh, break that down. And if we have time, I'd love to just give a, a quick precursor to this most recent piece that you did as well. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We'll be right back. I have on the line with me Stephen Kessler, Ph.D. It's a great, con- I mean, it's a great conversation because you really make us think. Uh, we're talking about your piece that you uh, just recently had published in the American Thinker. And that is the roots of the left's acceptance of pedophilia. And you said that there's three questions that you always ask liberals. And I think the first one you said, you felt good, but did you do good? What were the results? What's your other two questions? Sure. So the other two questions are, are we bringing people up or are we yanking them down? When we bring people up, it's a good thing. When we yank people down, when it's not about me winning, but you losing, it's not about me rising, but you falling. And it's not about me having what you have, but about you not having it at all. That's the hallmark of envy. And so when you, you know, when you pay attention to a lot of the social justice rhetoric about diversity, equity, you often find that it's not about bringing others up, but just about taking things away from other people. 
And whenever we use envy as the basis of social policy, it should be pretty obvious that's a terrible idea. You know, Lincoln, other, oh. Lincoln had a quote. He said, you cannot strengthen the weak by weakening the strong. And I, and I, I think those are so connected. So, okay, number three, what's your other question? Oh, yeah. Same exact notion. Um, the other question is, do you have any skin in the game? Uh-huh. Because if you have no skin in the game, then it's no skin off your back. So I had a, a real liberal lefty Marxist professor, and she would advocate for, quote-unquote, redistribution of wealth from big business, as though wealth is distributed. You know, like we have the Office of Wealth Distribution. Mm-hmm. And, oh, no, they gave letters L through M, two helpings, and they skipped O and P. Um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway... And then I would say, you know, business can be really unstable from year to year. Why not use the world's most stable profession, tenured professors? Now, the, not only is, you know, your, it's your idea, and now it's coming out of your pocket. How do you feel? And she goes, oh, oh I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, suddenly when you have skin in the game, you're no longer uh, as gung-ho. You're a lot more conservative when it comes to things. Okay, those are great questions, and uh, a couple of things uh, to my listeners. We will take, you You had recommended uh, a couple of books, and then you'd also, I think there's another place that you said you had a, a, a video, and then we'll get these questions, and we'll we'll get those up on Facebook so that people can, um, you know, take a look at that, because I, th- I think people would like to have all that information. So that'll be on uh, Americhick's Facebook a little bit later today. Uh, anything else that you would like to say about this piece that you did in The American Thinker, The Roots of the Left's Acceptance of Pedophilia? Yeah, I, I really want people to understand that there's no limits or fixed order to liberalism, and that the things that sound preposterous to us today will be the battleground in 10, maybe 15, 20, or even a couple of days. <laughs> okay. So, years or days. Yeah. so to that point, we need to be uh, holding the line now, and we need to start to push back on that. Let's hop over yeah. here to this piece now. You, it, you said it just got published. It's Birth Control and the Decline of Civilization. Okay, so I'm just working on it now. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to send it out in a couple of days, but the whole concept is fascinating. Um, what you'll hear people say is the liberal welfare state destroyed the family unit in America, that all of a sudden we had this incentive for people to be single mothers, and then suddenly the single motherhood rate skyrocketed. That's largely the work and thought of Charles Murray. However, if you were to read the, uh, the literature of a guy named George Akerlof, who was a Nobel laureate, he says that it's not, um, it's not liberal welfare, it's birth control. Really? That nothing has so, yeah, nothing has so fundamentally altered the world quite like birth control. And I'll, I'll be pretty brief about it. Okay. So basically, men and women, the married, you know, monogamous family unit has forever been the break of civilization. And it's based on this one premise. Men have an unlimited supply of sperm, and biologically, we can never know if we're the father or the child. The kid may look like me, the kid may talk like me, but for all I know, it's the milkman. Men, therefore, look to reproduce widely. Women, on the other hand, have a finite number of eggs, meaning menopause, and when they have sex, biologically, women get pregnant. Sex is, therefore, really costly for women because they bear the cost of pregnancy more so than men, right? Right, okay. So, therefore, because of this high cost, women look to reproduce wisely. Men have this high drive. Women, women have less of that drive. So men are buyers in the market, women sellers. Men are scorers, and women are goalies. 
So therefore, women had never sold sex to men because of the high cost at anything other than an equally high price. And that price had forever been marriage. Right? Okay. So then all of a sudden, birth control comes along, and to a lesser extent, abortion. And all of a sudden, the women who would otherwise hold out for marriage and sell sex at that high cost, high price, are now suddenly able to sell it at almost nothing. Because if you're on the birth control pill, there is no cost to sex for you. And now all of a sudden, you've got two types of women out there. Women who will sell sex at the high cost of marriage, and women who will sell sex at the cheap cost of you know, you know, a date or two, something like that, even less so. And that's really the cause of all this hookup culture. So now you've got men and women making a choice. Men, we know, want the cheap sex because that's how we're hardwired. So men are choosing between two women, women who will sleep with them and women who won't. Kim, who are they going to choose? Well, and with, without the constraints of, uh, you know, Christian faith or moral authority, they're going to yeah. choose the cheap sex, right? Obviously. And so what that did then was it put the other side, the women, in a moral conundrum. The old expression, no one's going to want to buy the cow when you're giving the milk away for free comes to mind. Mm -hmm. There's women next door who are giving the cow away, the milk away for free, which then puts the other women at a severe disadvantage. And they theorize and fear that if they don't put out, they're going to go, the men are going to choose the other women. And that was 100% true. So what this then did was it standardized premarital sex as the, you know, the new norm in the world. And once again, as sex always had before, it led to babies. This time, there was no marriage commitment associated with it. And all of a sudden, the, you know, the single motherhood rate skyrocketed. That is absolutely fascinating because I had always really thought, you know, LBJ had, you know, basically with the Great Society had said to women, you know, if you get a man out of the house, we'll take care of you and your kids. But, you know, I mean, this is... This is kind of a hard conversation to have because it really gets down to kind of the the human component, the you know the, the you know the the biological component. But you know, Stephen, I think there's a lot of. Tr- I mean, I think this is there's a lot of truth to what you've just unpacked here. Has anybody else talked about it like you have? Um, a lot less people do. So basically, the pill is known as the paradox of the pill because on the one hand, it's had the consequences I'm talking about. But on the other hand, it's been fantastic for women. You know, you can get an education, you can get a job, you can delay your fertility, you can have two earners, you can be a positive role model for women to achieve. And those are all great things, but at the same time, the human condition is tragic. And whether we like it or not, these things have had negative effects on people. It's made premarital sex the norm. It's raised single motherhood. It's made, you know, cheap sex. Women, women are less happy when they have this kind of sex. It's made people... You know, the, uh, the rates of STDs, depression, uh, all the ills associated with failed marriages. And, you know, all those kinds of things are now front and center because of abortion and birth control. The other major, major, major component of this has to do with civilization and energy. Uh, a couple of guys like Sigmund Freud, J.D. Unwin, and Carl um, Napoleon Hill, they relate sexual energy of a civilization to the energy of the civilization in general. And they say that when this sexual energy is channeled into constructive means, it propels a civilization. However, when people are allowed to freely sleep with people whenever they want and have sex whenever they want, the energy of a civilization disappears, and then the civilization eventually collapses. 
And that's really what this is doing. Wow. Okay. Well, so now when is this piece going to be published? Do you know and where? Oh, I'm just just finishing up the editing process. I'm going to submit it to a scholarly journal, less so than a public consumption one. Okay, very good. So, And Stephen Kessler, where can people find your, uh, your pieces? I know American Thinker. Are there other spots as well? Sure. The American Thinker, the Imaginative Conservative, the Conservative Online, the Vogelin View, uh, just to name a few places. Okay. And just the final thought that you'd like to leave with our listeners this morning. Uh, sure. I really want people to pay attention to what's going on in Congress right now. There's about 15 states that are trying to abolish the Electoral College. It will make our country, it'll turn our country from a representative republic to a direct democracy, and that will ultimately destroy our country. Okay, yeah, and that's that national popular vote that uh, that uh, will be hopefully on the ballot here in Colorado, which will keep us uh, in our constitutional republic instead of the this... Uh, this tyranny of the majority, if you will. So, Stephen Kessler, thank you so much. This is always a great conversation. You make us think, that's for sure.